You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 72. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we are talking with wildlife filmmaker Jake Willers. Jake's path to becoming a wildlife filmmaker is really unique, and he has a lot of fascinating stories to share about the steps and missteps that he took along the way. We'll be hearing many of these stories in our interview with Jake today, but luckily for us, you can hear more from Jake on his new podcast series that he's launching today. Jake has just started producing a new podcast show called Master Wildlife Filmmaking, which you can check out on iTunes or on Jake's website at masterwildlifefilmmaking.com. And each episode features an extended interview with someone involved on some level in making films about wildlife. In fact, in episode two of the show, you can hear Jake's interview with me, in which I discuss how I became interested in making documentaries about wildlife and conservation issues. So if you enjoyed today's interview with Jake, definitely check out his new podcast series and be on the lookout for future collaborations between Eyes on Conservation and Jake's new show, Master Wildlife Filmmaking. Let's jump into the interview. All right, I'm here with Jake Willers, who is a filmmaker from Nine Caribou Productions. How are you, Jake? I'm good, thanks, Matt. How are you doing? Fantastic. Thanks a lot for coming on the show today. So, Jake, you've been working with wildlife for for basically your entire career, right? I kind of want to start off just by asking you, you know, where this passion for wildlife came from. Let's track that back to its origins. Yeah, you're right. I have been working with wildlife ever since I was uh, knee-high to a grasshopper. Um, (laughs) I actually, I I had the... um the, the fortune of, of kind of growing up on a wildlife park. So it all started way back when I was um, about 10 years old. My, my, my parents were split up. So I would stay with my mother at her house in Cambridge in the United Kingdom um, during the week. And at weekends, I would go over to spend the, the weekend with my dad. And my dad purchased a piece of land that um, he was a builder at the time, a construction worker. And um, he was, he'd been doing pretty well for himself and he bought this piece of land that he wanted to have his horses on. He was a show jumper. And so he bought this piece of land and he put his house in the middle and he put jumps up and he would ride his horse around and, um, and enjoy himself, you know, when uh, his horse um, in his, in his downtime. Um, and then with his, I believe it was his third marriage, my stepmother was very much into um, having kind of farm animals around on, on the property. So chickens for chickens for eggs and goats for milk and, and calves and you name it. Um, and so they had this kind of mini menagerie that started up, um, as I say, I was around 10 years old. And then one day they were approached by a friend who had um, just hit a, a jackdaw 
a small black bird that we have in England. I don't think you have jackdaws over here, but um, a small small black bird being hit hit the windscreen, and it was um, kind of passed out. And uh, they were close to my father's property at the time. They drove in and said, "Oh, look, we, we have no idea what to do. You guys know animals. What, what do you want to do with it?" You know. And so they took it in and they rehabilitated um, this bird and they named him Jack, obviously. <laughs> and uh, and it, it kind of the whole thing started from there. It turned, it went from basically this small farmyard type property to a wildlife sanctuary that um, ended up opening to the public to be able to afford to exist uh, in terms of just the maintenance of the animals. Um, And over the years, it then evolved from a wildlife sanctuary, which was taking in native um, unwanted and injured species, um, into a full-blown wildlife park. And the wildlife park still exists today. It's called Shepreth Wildlife Park. Shepreth is the name of the village just outside of Cambridge, England. Um, And it's now one of uh, East Anglia's biggest tourist attractions. Um, It has around 100,000 people a year going through the gates. And um, it's also an international breeding center for endangered species. So, what happened was I grew up uh, kind of through that period of it evolving from this kind of farmyard into a wildlife sanctuary, into a, uh, a wildlife uh, park, and um, got obviously very close to a lot of wildlife and got to um, rehabilitate wildlife and then um, moved into the more exotic things as we became a wildlife park and were, um, were given these exotic species, things like uh, vervet monkeys and macaques and and marmosets. And these animals were people's pets in England and they were illegally being kept. Um, In England, to keep those kind of animals, you have to have what's known as a zoo license, which came into act uh, around the beginning of the, the 70s. And so without having one of those licenses, you couldn't have an exotic animal. And so um, our um, RSPCA, which is um, our equivalent of, I think over here, it's the ASPCA, um, they would go and confiscate these animals from people and then would have to try and find somewhere to home them. And typically that would be zoos and wildlife parks. And so we started building this collection of these animals that had been confiscated. And it really just grew from there. And uh, so I had this um, amazing fortune of being able to um, spend my weekends rearing uh, hedgehogs and baby birds and foxes, um, and then later on, um, you know, look after everything from kind of um, African monkeys to um, you know exotic snakes and, uh, and and right up until today, there's now we have uh, Bengal tigers, puma, lynx, uh, maned wolves otters, um, a huge amount uh, of uh, variety of birds, um, lots of fish. We have uh, many lakes around the park uh, full of all sorts of fish, uh, insects, reptile houses. You know, it's really the, the, the full deal. So there I was as this child having all of these experiences, um, and it really then uh, led me to leave school. I, I, in England, we leave school at 16 years old, and then you can go on to further education or you know whatever. But basically, you leave school at 16, um, and you're at that point free to you know go off and work. And for me, it was kind of a given that I was going to carry on and, and move on to run the wildlife park, uh, and that's what I did. I, I left school. 
Um, I actually did go back to to college to do some uh, kind of further education for one year, uh, but it was on and off. It was kind of part time, um, and then I, I went and worked at the the wildlife park full time, and it was uh, not many years before I was running the park, and um, and yeah, I mean, it, it just set me up for a career in wildlife. Fascinating, and what what a unique experience to get to grow up. Uh, in that type of environment and, and to be able to work so closely with all these, uh, you know, both native and, and non-native wildlife species. Really, really fascinating. Um, and so, I mean, it, it, you, you talked a lot about, you know, some of the direct interactions you had with, with these wildlife species uh, that you had at the park and then how you sort of, you know, moved through sort of multiple jobs, taking on different responsibilities at this park and then ultimately became the person who was, was running this wildlife park. Um, I mean, I guess at, at, at some point, well, I, I, I guess I'm curious, you know, at, at, at some point, I'm sure, you know, your responsibilities transition from, you know, the person being responsible for sort of the welfare of these animals to, you know, having this responsibility to communicate a lot of this information um, about these wildlife species to the public. And I, I'm, I'm wondering sort of what that was like, you know, uh, uh, taking on that, that uh, responsibility of, uh, basically a science communicator right yeah absolutely um it it became a really important role because as we evolved as a park um very early on we were just very focused on on the animals obviously and their their well-being the animal husbandry and getting their environments right you know this was a learning curve for us this was back in the um in the 80s uh when we were kind of when we, we were nurturing its um its beginnings um and, and so it was this big learning curve. We had to make sure we got the environments right for these animals. And, um, and so we really focused very heavily on that. But as we, um, as we were open to the public and we had kind of got the environments right and everything was running really well, it, it became of paramount importance to then uh, pass the information over and really use these animals as ambassadors for their species. Um, for us, it was very, very important that uh, we, you know, we had lots of families with small children coming through. And, you know, that, it's always fascinating to go to a zoo or a park and, and see these creatures, um, but but more so to learn about them and understand, one, why they're there. You know, that was always a really important thing. You know, they weren't there just because we wanted to show people these animals. They were there specifically because they had been confiscated or they were injured or uh, they were part of a breeding program. Um, so that was big information to get across. But then also to really, you know, educate people on what these animals were, where they came from, where was their native um, habitat, what, what type of habitat it was, um, and some of the incredible traits. And and that kind, that evolution really of, of going from that kind of animal husbandry over to science educator, if you like, happened by... Um, us going out and doing lots of uh, school outreach. And so we would go to lots of elementary and high schools and uh, we, we would take some of the smaller uh, creatures along with us and, and kind of uh, talk to the kids about um, the bio- biological side of the animals, you know, just um, not just where they're from, but, you know, what this, how this animal interacted with its environment and, and those kind of things. And that was easy to do with kind of the insects, the millipedes and the, the cockroaches and the snakes and things things like that. Um, And then we got to the point where we realized that actually we needed to do this more 
um, on site. We really needed an education centre where we could, um, you know, bring school parties in rather than us go to them. Uh, you know, bring them in and and have a walk around the wildlife park, but then sit them down in a room where we could do real kind of talks and presentations to them. Um, and and so we did. We we uh, built an education room. It was very crude at first. It was kind of a room that we we used for many different things, whether it be like a picnic area in the winter where you know people could come inside out of the rain because obviously it's this is England we're talking about. You know we don't have as much sunshine as uh, I do now being in Nevada, but. Um, and so it was very crude to begin with. We would just put tables and chairs in and do these talks to kids. Um, and, and then we, uh, it evolved to a, a nicer building that was dedicated to education and had lots of um, uh, things in there, props in there, if you like, skulls and skeletons and things like that that we could kind of explain more about the, um, the creatures. Uh, and today they now actually have, um, within about the last five years, uh, have built an even bigger education center. It's now a vast kind of education center that's kind of part museum, part education centers. And they have many, many schools going through there. And I say they because I moved over to uh, the U.S., uh, nine years ago now, just in 2007, and um, and I left the wildlife park, and I'm over here as a filmmaker now, and I still uh, deal a lot with the wildlife park, but remotely, um, but now it's really gone from strength to strength, and um, they're doing extremely well as a breeding center, an attraction, um, and an education center for, uh, for passing that information along. Um, and so then, then another kind of evolution took place, as it were. Uh, I, I was uh, working at the wildlife park one day and we had a production company come along and um, wanted to get lots of interviews with me and some of the wildlife that we had there. And so I did uh, a bunch of these mini kind of interviews for uh, news pieces. They were like newscasts that were going to go out on cable news. And it was the production company that actually contacted me um, about three or four weeks after we did the filming. And they said, look, we've, we've looked through the rushes and we, we feel that you, you work very well on TV and we, we think you'd make a good TV host or presenter. Is that something that would interest you? And, you know, I, I thought, well, I'd never even thought about TV in any way, shape, or form. It just hadn't, you know, wasn't on my radar. Um, and I said, well, you know, I'm interested, but it would have to not interfere with my daily work at the Wildlife Park. And another time, I was working anywhere from 60 to 80 hours a week at the Wildlife Park. Um, I mean, it was all-consuming. And so I said to them, look, you know, if you guys came along at 5 a.m. and, you know, we did some filming early in the morning before I start my job, then, then great. Um, and, and that's what happened. They, they came along and we filmed some promo pieces. And the idea was they were going to uh, kind of take those pieces, create a sizzle reel, and approach uh, National Geographic, among others, um, with the idea of doing a series. And I should add here that what had actually happened was I had curated an insect house at the wildlife park. Um, I built it. It was um, part of our, our main entrance uh, was our, our gift shop, our cafeteria. And then we had um, a larger building that we had put in for an aquatic center, which was um, 
it's something that we had to subsidize the wildlife park in the early days. We actually had an aquatic center selling um, kind of fish tanks and uh, small fish and um, aquatic plants, that type of thing. And that had never done very well. And so we decided that we would get rid of that and we would do something else with this space. And I'd always been fascinated by insects um, as a child and figured that, wow, let, let's put an insect house in, right? If I'm fascinated this much, I can really pass that passion along to kids coming through. And so I built, and literally, I physically built myself this uh, this this attraction. I mean, I was, uh, we, we kind of did all of our own carpentry and our own plumbing. That's the only way we could make the wildlife park work. Back in those days, um, you know, we there wasn't a penny to spare. So we literally, because my father was in construction, he taught me how to do all of those things. So we did our own plumbing, our, our own electrics, our own carpentry, and we built everything on site, including all of the uh, animal enclosures. And so I would uh, spend my evenings literally from the 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 time that the gates closed at the wildlife park which is around 6 p.m i would stay until about midnight working on this new insect house and it took me about three months to complete it um, we ended up with hundreds of different species of insects from and not just insects there were other arthropods spiders and scorpions things like that in there as well um, but we had everything from um, about five different species of cockroach. Uh, we had sun beetles and goliath beetles, the biggest beetle in the world, rhinoceros beetles. Um, one of the best attractions I had in there were Trinidadian uh, leaf, cutter, leaf cutter ants. Um, and it ended up being extremely popular um, because they were very difficult to keep in, in captivity. Uh, um, my enclosure ended up being, uh, in fact, they're still there today. And so it's been running for that one enclosure. It's been there 16 years now, this one nest of ants. The original nest I put in in 2001 uh, is still there, 2000 in fact, uh, is still there and, um, and being very, very popular. So what it was, was I curated this insect house and um, the production company had seen my passion with those creatures and they wanted to uh, put together a sizzle reel, which was primarily about insects. And so uh, they did so. And I thought nothing would ever come of it. Never thought another thing about it. Literally, they came along for a few days, filmed a few things, and that was it. They went away. I didn't think any more about it. About three months later, they gave me a call and said, we've just landed a six-part series with you as the host for National Geographic Channel, international, which means um, National Geographic is uh, has separate kind of uh, syndications, if you like, around the world. Uh, National Geographic Indi uh, um, International actually goes to 147 countries, uh, but it doesn't include North America because North America has its own uh, its own branch. And so we just landed this series. Uh, with me being the host, six-part series, there were going to be half-hour episodes each, uh, going to 147 countries. And it ended up being extremely popular. It was translated into 25 languages. Um, and that was the first series of many that I did for National Geographic. And, and that was kind of my, you know, my transition into being this... Um, I don't know, science educator, I guess, for want of a better term, uh, you know, th that was where I started to get into the TV world and start putting this information out to, uh, out to the public. And it's something that I've enjoyed ever since. 
was it easy for you to like sort of fall into this new role as the host of a TV series? Was this sort of a natural fit for you because of the education and science communication work you had been doing at the wildlife park? Yeah, that that was exactly the reason that I found it easy. It, rather than um, rather than it being something where I felt the 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 production was focusing on me, I felt that it was very much focusing on the subject, which would have been you know a cockroach or a spider or a, you know whatever I had at the time, and so it, it kind of felt natural from that respect. That there's nothing natural about being on TV at all. I mean, for anyone, you know, people can make it look easy. Um, and I think that really comes through um, just experience, like with most things, you know, the more you do it, the easier it gets. Um, I have to be totally honest. I, I never really liked being a TV host. Um, I never went looking for it. It was nothing, it was something, you know, I, I'd never, ever seen myself in that role. And so when it came along, it was a bit of a surprise. So the way I dealt with it was very much by utilizing the skills I had as a communicator, which, as I said earlier, you know, going into schools, talking to um, uh, classrooms full of children um, and showing my passion. I could tell that when I was excited to show something, um, you know, it excited other people. That, that, that kind of excitement is contagious. You know, it's like a smile. If you walk into a room smiling, it makes people smile, right? And, and I felt that when I walked into a room and I had this millipede and I was excited about it and I explained it and how fascinating they were and how they helped with decomposition in the rainforest, you know, it really got people thinking about it and kids kind of excited about this creature because it made them think more about it than just, you know, how ugly it was or how many legs or how creepy it was. I would turn that around and say, you know, not even say it's not creepy. I would just show it in a different light. And so, that transition was fairly simple, um, although it, it really just happened. I'd had no chance to practice or get um, used to it, really. Um, you know, there was no period of time. They didn't come to me and say, hey, let's do some practicing here. Let's get a camera and let's do this, that, and the other. What actually happened was they said, Okay, this is the series we're going to do. Uh, it was actually called Insects from Hell, which, um, you know, sadly, I, I never liked the, <laughs> the, the title, but it was one of those things at the time. It was all about creating drama with these series. And so it was named Insects from Hell, and it was about, um, it was a magazine-style program. So it was basically just following me, finding various different insects, um, and this was based in Africa, um, and, and then me explaining about them. And so the first ever scene I did, um, I literally, uh, well, the lead up to this was they contacted me and said, okay, in three months, we are, we, we're going to Africa. We're going to go to South Africa. We're going to go to the Kruger National Park and we're going to uh, find whatever we can find there and we're going to make sure about it. I mean, it was literally that loose of a, of a production. It was like, we will make a program out of what we find. There were, there were things we wanted in there. We wanted dung beetles in there. I mean, when I say we, we're talking about the production company and the producer. And uh, at this time, I, I really had no control over the shows. Um, I was just there to host them and, and use my expertise on them. Um, and so they had an idea of the kind of things that they wanted in the show. But it was a case of, you know, you had to find them. And so when we would get to these countries, we would have people on the ground, local people who knew the areas to go to. Um, but 
but but really what happened was they said, okay, in three months we're heading out to South Africa and we're going to start filming. And I was still working my 80 hours a week at the wildlife park and I had to try and take this chunk of three weeks off, which I'd never done before. Uh, it was really difficult to find uh, staff to cover because, you know, we were, we, we didn't have this hugely flexible kind of uh, pool of people to pull from in terms of staff. We were minimally staffed because it was very difficult for us to uh, keep the park running. Basically, we, we got, uh, I got the cover for the wildlife park and um, we headed out to South Africa. And on this first morning, very jet lagged, we headed out um, into the Kruger National Park to find elephants. Because if you're going to look for dung beetles, you need to find elephants and find some dung. And literally, I was thrown into the deep end when I'd been given no script and what they wanted me to do was just to use my expertise on these creatures and go in and talk to the camera about what I was seeing and what I'd found. And so we found this large uh, pile of dung. It was around two to three feet across and uh, about a foot high. And it was covered in dung beetles. I mean, there's probably about 200 dung beetles. And these are, these are a fair-sized dung beetle. They're, they're a good two to three inches across. They're a big, big beetle. And their wingspan is, is huge, you know, four inches maybe. And so they, they just started rolling the camera and said, walk in there and start talking to the camera. And that's what I did. And from that moment on, I thought, okay, this is, this is what TV is, right? <laughs> I was expecting a script, uh, you know, this whole thing. And, and th we did end up having loose scripts. Um, the idea was that they didn't want a fully scripted show because it kind of inhibits you, if you unless you're an actor and, and you can memorize a script and go in and, and you know, and, and do that. It's not going to come across very well. So it was very loosely done. I went in and I would talk to the camera about um, the 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 creature that I was, um, you know, had there. And, um, and then we would fill in with written pieces. I would come away and I'd write a piece and I'd do a, a piece to camera um, that I had just written uh, that kind of held the story together. And then, of course, we would get back and the producer would write uh, a narration for it that would then really tie in all of these pieces that we'd filmed on location. And so um, it, it it was, you know, I was thrown into the deep end. And I think in some ways it was good. It's, it's like most of the things that I think creative people do in their lives, a lot of the time, and I'm speaking more from my own, my own uh, point of view here, I find if I'm thrown into the deep end, I create whether it's uh, uh, something like this, like a podcast, whether it's doing an interview for the news, whether it's going on live TV, <clears throat> whether it's um, being a filmmaker, whether it's, uh, you know, doing anything where I have to create something. I find if I just get on and do it, I'm able to create. It happens. If I have too much lead time where I think too much preparation time, I almost overthink it and it gets so complicated and I get so worried, I'll put myself into a place of a panic attack. And, um, you know, that's actually happened to me in certain times when uh, I've done live TV, for instance, and it's not been one of those things where you walk in and you're just on TV, where you've had to sit around for half a day waiting. I then end up having panic attacks and, um, and it's pretty severe because I start overthinking everything. And so I think my 
um, my transition into TV where I really had no, uh, no time to prepare for it, it just happened, was probably the best, um, the best uh, introduction to it I could have had. You talk about how you were just sort of thrown into this position as as a TV host um, and, and how that sort of worked to your benefit. But, I mean, I'm wondering, like, where that, that next step happened. I mean, when did you first start branching out and producing your own independent uh, documentaries? Yeah, it's um, it, it was an interesting transition. I found that uh, I worked making shows for National Geographic and also other channels um, um, as we kind of went through the uh, my career there. And... That was a period of about eight years um, that I was doing that. And, and what it did is it gave me this huge insight to TV production. And so I, I got to see, I was very lucky because I got to see um, uh, small productions. I, I got to work with just a cameraman in some cases where it would be me and a cameraman going out and um, I would be writing my own script and doing it off the cuff. Uh, and then I got to work with larger crews where we would go out with sometimes there were 13 people on the crew and I, I really got to see how all these people interacted and of course I, I knew nothing about TV production other than what I was seeing as a host and I found that uh, I'd said earlier that I, I didn't really like being a host and the reason I didn't really like it was because I felt I had to be prepared to be on camera right and uh, I, I've also said that I didn't prep much right <laughs> and I didn't but I had to be a, a, a kind of elevated amount of passion to be on TV no one wants to watch someone you know half asleep or depressed on TV right you've got to be have a certain amount of energy to be on there and passion and some days that's just really hard to muster. I mean, I'm a passionate person about my subject um, and I love it. And, you know, it, it, it's, it, it fascinates me, which is where my passion comes from. But when you get extremely tired, I mean, to give you an example, uh, one month we did 16 international flights in one month filming. That's flying all around the world. Um, and in some cases, flying back and forward from England to America on, on more than one occasion within one month to do a different show. And it, it just, it takes it out of you unless you're really good at sleeping on aircraft. And I have to stress here, we were not in first class, right? We weren't in little pods where we had beds. You know, we were in the economy class crammed in and, um, and you know, that, that's, that's how we did it. These were not big budget shows. Um, and so I was extremely tired. <clears throat> um, and so I really had to find passion and enthusiasm. And when you're tired and in some cases hungry, we would be in some very remote places where we couldn't drink the water unless it was sealed, bottled water. Um, we had to be very careful eating the food, uh, you know, because obviously salads and things in certain countries that have been washed with the local water, you know, has all sorts of bacteria in the water. So we always had someone getting sick through, um, you know, making the mistake of eating the wrong thing and so we, we were always kind of uh, you know hungry and thirsty and tired because we were always so paranoid about you know eating a lot of the local food and drinking the local water that um, it was just very taxing on your body and then to have to go on in front of the camera and, and be very enthusiastic got very very difficult for me and um, I would pull it off but um, it, it just kind of took its toll to the point where I thought you know I, I'm not enjoying this 
in the way that I expected I would enjoy it because I'd never really chased this idea of being on TV. And what I had seen while going through all of this, I saw like the camera guy and the producer and all these people that didn't actually have to muster up this enthusiasm on days when they couldn't. But they had this great creative energy where they were really like thinking about, you know, the, the director of photography or the cameraman, um, depending on how big the shoot was, the cameraman was the, the director of photography or, or director as well as the cameraman. Some shoots we would have a director and a separate cameraman. But I, I really saw the creative process that they were going through. And I thought, you know, I, I love the idea of having more of the creative control over these things. It, it, it was fascinating me that, you know, um, we were in these incredible places. I mean, we would be in, you know, the Amazon jungle. We would be in um, the Bolivian jungle. We would be in India walking through spice markets. We would be um, in on the island of Zanzibar off of Africa with just stunning beaches. And all of these were incredible, but a lot of the time, I felt that I was kind of missing out on this creative aspect of filmmaking. And I had to worry about my on-screen persona or getting it right, making sure that I didn't have to do 20 takes that day of one sentence because I was so tired that I couldn't get it right. You know, there were, there were times, there was one time specifically in India where... Um, the pressure was on. We were filming a, a show. It was a one-hour special for National Geographic, and um, it was about mosquito-transmitted diseases. And we were um, at, at this um, kind of rice paddy, and the sun was setting. Um, I mean, it was just a, a, a filmmaker's dream. Sun was setting in the background. There was a water buffalo stood in the rice paddy, um, drinking and eating uh, the water and, and the, the, the foliage that was growing there. And on its back were these two stalks, these white stalks and this gray buffalo and this beautiful crimson sunset. And the, I was kind of crouched down in the foreground at the front of this, this rice paddy. And in the background over my shoulder, you could see this incredible scene. And I had this paragraph that was pre-written that I had to memorize. This was in the days. This was further on where we were doing more scripting. And, um, and I had to memorize it and say it. And it was near the end of the day, obviously, with the sunset. And I was just exhausted. And so I knelt down, looking at the scene. The diarist said, go, go, go. We've got to get this now. We're going to lose it. We've got like five minutes and that sunset's gone. And so take one totally screwed it up, take two, screwed it up, take 20, screwed it up. It took somewhere around 27 takes, at which point the sunset had gone, <laughs> you know, one of the stalks had flown away, the buffalo had moved, and it was just like the pressure had built so much. I, I was at that point really questioning why I was doing it because there, there were times like that where I should have really been enjoying it and there were times I won. It was just so much pressure and I thought, you know, I really, I'd rather be behind the camera at this point, <laughs> you know. Um, I felt I was built to be behind the camera, not in front of it. And so that, that was kind of the, what was going on in my mind at the time. And so what happened was when I got the opportunity, we, we would get some downtime if we were out uh, in Africa filming and 
and suddenly a huge downpour of rain would come and it would stop filming. Um, I would then go and sit with the, the, the camera guy. And, and at the time we had this fantastic camera guy called Herman. He was a South African. Um, and he was just, he'd, he'd been in the um, movie industry. He'd filmed on um, things like the old Tarzan movies. Um, and so he had this wide array of kind of expertise with, with filming. And he'd moved into the documentary world and he loved that kind of, um, that, you know, freer world of documentary, the type of stuff we were doing than the more Hollywood style movies. And um, he was just a great guy. I got on with him really well in the evening. We would sit down, have a drink together, and, and we would go through and look at some of the, the footage that we'd filmed that day. And he would give me advice. Um, because he worked with a lot of big names in the industry. And he'd say, look, you, you're doing really well, but, you know, try doing this and try doing that. And I really appreciated um, his kind of advice and expertise. Um, but what I really liked was this fact that he would sit there and look at his work through the day. And, and I really enjoyed doing that with him. And I thought, you know, this is, this is something I could see myself doing. And so when we had some downtime, I would ask him if I could take the camera. And this was back in the day of the, the bigger Sony, um, like the F900, um, really super expensive um, ENG-style cameras, the bigger shoulder mount cameras. I think the, at the time there was like an $80,000 camera, um, far different to, you know, today's world of technology um and and so i would uh, i would just practice a bit with with the camera i would learn to use it i would film a few things um if we were doing some scenes where i wasn't involved um i would ask if hey you know could i could i just grab a few cutaways and and um i remember being uh in uh, where were we? Christmas Island. We were filming red crabs in Christmas Island, the, the crab migration. I remember we needed to get lots and lots of cutaways for uh, the crabs going across the, the island, getting to the coastal area. And and there was actually one time when, this was a different camera guy, but he, he really didn't like heights. And I'm not a big fan of heights either, but we had the camera set right up on the cliffside to film these crabs climbing down this cliff. Quite incredible. They would, I mean, this is hundreds of feet and they would just climb down this rock face to get to the water and the camera guy really wasn't comfortable being on the edge of the cliff and so uh, asked me whether I could do it so I then filmed some of these shots of the crabs going down and just loved every minute of it just really loved it and when the show came out I, I would kind of pinpoint rather you know there I am hosting the show and I didn't get excited about that I got excited about the shots of the crabs walking down the, the cliffside that I had filmed and that's when I got the idea, okay, th this is what I want to do. Uh, and to answer kind of the rest of your question of, you know, when did I make that transition? Really, it was, um, it was kind of partly through doing that, um, that hosting work, that presenter work. Um, and I had my own camera, bought myself a small, um, I believe it was a Canon camera I got originally, a Canon kind of small camcorder. And I would start doing my own filming. Um, back at the wildlife park, I would uh, film uh, many of our animals there to make short pieces that we could uh, we could use just on site in, in TVs in the cafeteria and, and various places. Um, and doing little educational videos in, um, in animal enclosures. And, and it kind of transitioned. And then um, I moved over 
to the US in 2007 and that was when it really kind of took off where I opened my production company I bought my own gear and I set off making my own productions kind of full force um and in the early days what I did was I I started making kind of a kid series um where I would be in front of the camera filming myself because that's kind of what I'd been used to and it wasn't that uh, I it was kind of my 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 way of of creating something as a filmmaker that made sense to me was to be in it because I, I was a host. And so it made more sense for me to try and do that because that's really complicated to try and do really good production uh, when you're on your own with a camera, you're filming yourself, then you're filming the cutaways and you're trying to make it look like it's a bigger production than just, I, I wasn't trying to do a Les Stroud here where I was, you know, saying it was me with a camera. I was trying to mimic a bigger production with me in front of a camera. And that was really hard. Uh, it came out quite well, but it was very, very time consuming. And, you know, as a filmmaker, you soon learn that uh, you've got to be very, um, very careful with your time. And you've got to um, film in a way that you can make it uh, viable um, from an expense point of view, a time point of view. Um, and so that was kind of my transition into becoming a filmmaker. And, and from there, I, uh, I went on to uh, get away from being in front of the camera and staying behind the camera and starting to make films. And, and, and that, that kind of all happened uh, when I moved over to the U.S. I feel like, you know, most people who think about, you know, the responsibilities of like, a wildlife videographer, um, I, I, I think sort of the general perception of that is that that's like a highly specialized task. And these are people who that's all they do is specialize in capturing this really high quality footage of wildlife. But you know, increasingly, it seems like, you know, videographers and filmmakers today need to have a, a, a pretty diverse skill set to really be successful. So, I mean, I, I guess as someone who's worked, you know, both on these large broadcast series, but also produced your own independent films. Um, I mean, where do you, where do you see this industry going? Is, is it um, is there still a place for that highly specialized uh, wildlife videographer? Yeah, I, th I think there is. Um, you know, it's it's. I think we've got the best of both worlds now. I think we're in a place, what, what excites me is that because there's still a place, there's still these, you know, fantastic blue chip series that are, um, uh, Discovery and BBC are kind of, you know, nurturing together now. Um, you know, those take big production crews to, to pull together without a doubt. Um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a difficult one. I guess my my view on it, I've gone through these varying different levels of, of how I feel about small and large crews. And um, in the early days, I would see all these people on these large crews and think, why have we got all these people? Why are all these people being paid so much money to be here for this end product that you could do with half the amount of people? <laughs> that was my, that's really how I felt about it. You know, there were, there were some people that were being paid a lot of money who didn't look like they were doing a lot of work. And I felt that was wrong and that money could be better spent. And, you know, what I kind of have learned throughout my entire career is that 
when you do stuff on your own, it, it's it's a lot of work. I mean, to be really attentive to all of the needs of a production is really difficult. I mean, you wear yourself very, very thin. And I love doing that. But at the same time, that's great if you've got plenty of time. That I guess that's the, that's the thing. If you've got plenty of time to put into it, you can do that. You know, writing scripts, writing a storyline, writing a treatment or a proposal up front, writing a shot list. Uh, going out and physically filming it and then coming back and knowing you've got everything you need and then matching that to your storyline, editing it, distributing it. All of those things take a huge amount of time and energy and expertise. And yes, it's totally possible to do them on your own. Do, do I want to do that all the time now? Definitely not. Um, something I've learned is that um, I love going out with my camera and filming. I love building a story with a camera. I love getting back and looking at that footage and starting to kind of piece the story together. But then I'm not so keen on sitting there for the two or three months of putting a project together in the edit room. That's just, you know, something that I've kind of, I've come away from and I'd rather now push that footage onto an editor and say, you know, you edit it, I'll have oversight over it, but you know, you be the editor. Um, so I found what works for me and what I enjoy and what I don't enjoy. Um, and I can really see the value in having, uh, you know, a producer or a writer who's going to come in and write for you and write better than you, because I'm not a great writer. So, you know, I'd rather give that work to someone who is going to do it better than I can and focus on the things that I do well. And so, you know, at the end of the day, we want a product or a film um, that we're proud of. And I've, I've made lots of stuff I'm not that proud of, right? Because I've, I have put so much of my own time trying to do everything that the end product isn't the best it could have been. And I think that's just that learning curve, right? It's that learning curve that you, you learn through your mistakes. And that's been definitely one of my, uh, I mean, it's, I guess it's wrong to say mistakes because something actually came out of it, but um, the fact is I learned the hard way that if you try and do everything, you end up with something that can potentially be mediocre compared to if you've got other people involved. And so I, I do like to get other people involved, people who are as passionate as I am, people who uh, are good at what they do and can we can collaborate and create good content. Is there a place for both of those? Absolutely. I mean, with, with the distribution uh, channels that we have today, you know, YouTube, Vimeo, all of the social media that we can put things out on. I love it. I mean, I can now produce something that I can put out and it's out there instantly to an audience. That is phenomenal. I mean, that's a filmmaker's dream. Right. Yes, there's all the arguments about, you know, are you ever going to make money that way or can you fund doing that? That's a whole different subject. The fact that we can just create and put content out there uh, and to be seen instantly is amazing. I mean, that in the last 10 years or so has just changed our industry completely. Is there still room for the big productions? Well, absolutely as well. You know, the, the, I love those big blue chip productions. Um I think there's this kind of, we've taken this kind of dive into cheap TV. Um, I have to say I'm really not impressed with 
a lot of the shows that are on TV these days, um, Animal Planet, Discovery, National Geographic, I think have kind of dropped their standards to make cheap TV, to make entertainment. And I'm hoping that that will improve over, over time. Otherwise, I think at some point, I mean, there's obviously an audience for that. They're doing it specifically for ratings. Um, but, you know, that, that's a lot of that stuff is not my TV, my kind of TV. And I think we obviously all have our own um, idea of what we like to see and whether we want to see it for educational purposes or for entertainment. Um, but I think we've kind of hit rock bottom with many of the shows that over the last couple of years, especially, um, have really kind of brought some of those big networks to their knees and they're having to rethink, um, you know, their, their platform and their model for making shows. But that's a good thing. I mean, again, it's a mistake, right? They make some bad shows. It gets really bad feedback. Um, and, and it, it makes them learn. And so I think there's a place for everything, I'm just really interested to see what happens in the future. I think, it, you know, it's changing all the time. We've now got these video platforms like Netflix and Amazon Video. They're creating their own content and they're doing it exceptionally well. And I think they have bigger budgets than a lot of the networks now. Um, and so, again, it's just all changing. And, and um, I embrace change. I think it's something that uh, we should, you know, really um tap into and and not get too stuck in our ways as filmmakers i think uh, we have to learn to adapt for sure you touched on a, a few i think really important points there i mean figuring out what tasks you know you want to do as a filmmaker and what tasks you should be handing off to somebody else um is is really really important and i mean being more willing to sort of hand off that project that you've worked so hard on to uh, somebody else to edit it and sort of recognizing that um, that's maybe a better decision both for time management of yourself but also for the quality of the end product. So, yeah, I mean, definitely a, 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 lot, of, a lot of good stuff in there. Yeah, um, and just to interject there, I think, it's, I think that it's important because – what can happen is, um, speaking of editing alone, let, you know, you can have a great storyline and a great set of footage, you know, a, a, a bunch of files of incredible footage. It can be edited together in so many different ways that you could end up with so many different shows, right? You could end up with one that's highly watchable and one that's just not that watchable. And even this, the story is going to you know, potentially be the same, but it, it's that skill set. And just, you know, we're picking on editing here, that skill set that when I find I edit, I, I, I have this problem where I edit too slow. And I don't mean slow as in the time it takes me. I mean, in terms of the, the pace of what I'm trying to get across. A lot of the time, if it needs to be faster paced because of the energy that is being um, put out by the storyline, I find I'm a bit too slow with it and I can't kind of see the woods for the trees. And so I then, what, what works for me is taking a step back and maybe taking a week off. But, you know, you can't always do that. I mean, you know, time, a lot of the time you've got to get these things produced immediately and get them out. But if I take that time uh, and step back and then come back to it, I go, oh, why did I do that? Why didn't I add more shots in here and make it more exciting here? And, and I think that's kind of where the clarity of like, if you hand it to an editor, someone who sits there and does it every day, they can look at it from a different perspective and say, okay, you know, we're going to put it together like this, this, and this, and it will just make it more exciting to watch. And I think that in every 
different position, whether it's writing, producing, directing, being a camera person, all of those various different jobs can be done so much better if it's your kind of niche, if that's your thing you do. And I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just saying, you know, it, there's ways to collaborate with really good people to make a better end product. And I've, it's taken me a long time to learn that. And of course, there's the other big elephant in the room, which of course is cost, right? It's easy to say all these things, but you know, most of the time we don't have money to do that unless we've got a budget from a, a network or from a, um, a commercial entity. If that's you know how how the um, the piece is being produced, then um, a lot of time there isn't the money to do that. So then it's collaborating with people who have the same goal as you, and that is um, you know producing a piece in their own time um, to to help build a portfolio or just because they're passionate about a product um, or a production. So at the end of the day, um, there's lots of ways we can look at it. But, uh, uh, you know, if you have the ability to work with good, great other people, then do it, I say. You know, don't try and do everything yourself um, unless you have to. And if you have to, then do it. It's great fun to do that as well. But, you you know, it's a learning curve and you, you soon learn that it's nice to have other people on board. This conversation is sort of steered into this realm of, you know, us talking about, you know, advice that we share with other filmmakers because you've started spending a lot of your time now uh, sharing advice uh, uh, with other folks who are maybe aspiring wildlife filmmakers. I mean, are there like uh, one or two uh, tips that you sort of find to be the most important bits of advice to share with folks who are coming into this field for the first time? Yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> the the first is is really about gear because um, I get a lot of emails from people who uh, are looking for advice, and um, most of the time they're they're trying to work out what I film on or what I have filmed on, or you know. And the the reason they're asking that question is because they think that's what they have to film on. And it, it's you know you've got to if you're starting out in this industry. Um, You've got to forget about the quality of the camera you're going to get. I mean, you know, quality of camera is fantastic, right? We all want to create really beautiful looking pieces. But in this day and age, you can do that with so many of the cameras out there that don't cost $80,000, that don't cost $10,000. You know, you can pick up a phone these days that records incredible video. So, you know, I, I could talk about this for two hours straight, but <laughs> obviously I'm not going to do that. But um, but the fact is, don't get uh, wrapped up in the gear because at the end of the day, <clears throat> the gear is a tiny element. The gear is the, 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 you know, it's a tool in your toolbox and it should only be used like that. You should have a toolbox which is full of stuff, which is your creative... Um, uh, techniques that you're going to use to create your piece. And everyone is going to create a piece differently. We all have different ways of making films. But if you're starting out, really the best advice is, is look, if you can, if you know someone with a camera, if you haven't got one yourself, then you can borrow it. If you have a camera, um, then use that camera. If you uh, are going to, um, if you have some money and you want to buy a camera, then really think very hard about 
how much you're going to spend on it because typically when you buy a camera, it's just the tip of the iceberg and the, the giant piece that's looming under the water that you can't see is all the accessories that you have to buy. Um, a great example is audio gear. Um, I think any filmmaker would agree with me that you can, you could film a blue chip series with a fantastic, you know, high end camera, have these incredible visuals, but if your audio sucks, no one's going to want to watch it, right? If you've got bad audio with howling wind, you know, howling wind's okay if there's howling wind in the shot and it's obvious that it's there. But if it's all the way through your interviews because you didn't have a microphone that had a wind cover on it or you, you were using the camera on the, uh, the, the, the mic on the camera 10 feet away from your subject, you're going to have dreadful audio. Um, it, it's, you, you can't watch something with bad audio. Um, it, whereas the other way around, if your picture is, you know, mediocre, but you have great audio, then it's watchable. If the story's there, it's totally watchable. So you've got to be very careful. I've, I've met many people who have fallen into the trap where they say, okay, I've got $5,000 and I'm going to go and buy a $5,000 camera. And they do. And then they go out and they try and use it and realize they can't record any audio because they've, uh, well, the only audio they record is from the built-in uh, camera mic, which is as good as useless other than a scratch track. Um, you know, you really want to have a shotgun mic on top of the camera or an external mic, a lavalier mic that you put on for interviewing or a boom shotgun mic that you put over your interview subject. Um, Audio is everything, and, and you're going to spend, you know, a fair amount on audio gear as well. So just think about those components, and I'm not saying you need to spend thousands on all of that. I just mean be a very aware of the gear that you need and that you, um, that you uh, have to begin with, and really just concentrate on trying to film something that you can put together and, and concentrate on the story. Story is everything, right? The gear will come the budgets will come. If you can prove yourself with stories and getting great information out there, people do not care what it's filmed on, right? If you go and film a piece on this highly endangered species um, that is living in your backyard, crawling around the leaf litter, and it doesn't matter what you film on, if it's a compelling story and it gets great information across, then you've done your job as a filmmaker, right? And then at that point, you know, you will build your career up and get to the point where you'll have budgets and you'll have better gear. That stuff comes with time. Uh, I certainly didn't have great gear when I started. That That's not how it worked. Um, so that would be my first piece of advice is definitely get over gear envy. Don't, don't get sidetracked with gear envy. Just use what you have available at the time and start off in that manner. Um, and then really um, think about your technique. This is one of the biggest stumbling blocks um, that I try and um, advise people on. And that is that we're, you know, generally wildlife filmmakers are very passionate people, right? They're passionate about wildlife. They're passionate about conservation or whatever their interest may be within the field. And they go out and they, they're driven by that passion, which is great. But what it can do is it can do something that I fell into the trap of many times. And that is you get your camera and you, 
you you're not fully prepared by you know you haven't written this outline or a treatment or you know put a shot list together or even a storyboard which i don't really storyboard but you know having some idea of what you're heading out to shoot is always good but if you haven't got that and you suddenly see this um this animal let's say a a a pronghorn antelope and you want to go and film this pronghorn antelope and you go out and you're in the field and you've got your camera gear and you're all excited and this pronghorn has beautiful light coming down and this stormy uh distant kind of weather with the sunlit pronghorn and you film it and it's lovely vista and you're so excited that you you film a couple of scenes and you come home and you go oh my gosh i've just got this incredible footage i mean it was amazing because what happens is you're seeing this with your own eyes right and you're envisioning this shot and you get so overwhelmed with how beautiful it is and what you think you've got that you get back and you found that you find that you've just filmed a few scenes, right? You film these scenes of this, like this wide open vista with a small pronghorn and maybe a close up of a pronghorn. But what you didn't do is build a sequence for a story. And filmmaking is all about uh, telling a story rather is all about sequences um, with images. It can be very difficult if you're telling a story about, um, I I did a a film for wildlife conservation society a few years back uh, called path of the pronghorn. Um, And it was all about the first um, federally designated um, uh, wildlife corridor in North America, uh, which runs through Wyoming. And, it was um, it was you know incredible scenery, uh, wonderful um, to get out there and see these animals in their natural habitat. And I had to film them crossing this overpass that had been put in. They're just uh, the Department of Wild, uh, sorry, not the Department of Wildlife, the Department of Transport, along with um, a few other organisations, wildlife organisations, had got together. Um, they'd spent about ten million um, on putting in these wildlife overpasses and underpasses over a highway to protect this corridor and really the money shot in terms of what i needed was to get the pronghorn going over this overpass and um and so yeah you know i spent four days and it was on the fourth day that i got the that shot of it going over well that shot alone won't tell the story i call it the money shot because it's really the whole story was geared towards the protection of this migration route um and that consisted of them having to get across this highway, and it was all about the money spent building these overpasses and them actually making it over the overpasses and the overpasses working. So those were the the kind of uh, the climax of the story was the was the antelope going over the the overpass. But that alone doesn't make a story. You have to build the story. You have to ex- you have to show that there are all of these um, fences and obstacles that they have along their 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 path. And so I had to go along and I had to think about the storyline and create a shot list and go out there and think, okay, I need to get a shot of a pronghorn stood in the foreground with a bunch of fences behind it, right, to to show that there are these fences that we're talking about in the script. I need to go out and I I need to show how they pass over, in in antelope cases, under the fences um, because... They, uh, you, you know, they have to get through them somehow, and, and typically they go underneath them. But there are some cases where they can't, and that's a problem for them. Uh, and if they try and jump them, they can get caught in them. So, you know, 
I had to build these sequences, but not just by filming one scene of each thing. I have to go in and film, you know, a wide and establishing shot of where they are, a close up of the animal, because that's the subject we're talking about. And then maybe a few super close ups, a shot of an eyeball, a shot of a head. Um, you know, they have wonderful, um, uh, antlers, so you know, get a shot of those um, beautiful markings. See the the creature walking. Get a running shot. These are the fastest terrestrial animal in North America, right? They run at like fifty five miles an hour. So get a shot of them running. Um, get a shot of the signpost that's on the side of the road that says, you know, antelope crossing at fifty five miles an hour. Um, all of these elements build a story, and and one of the biggest problems I've seen for new, new up and coming filmmakers is that they'll send me things that they've shot and it'll be, you know, maybe just a three minute video, but it'll have, um, you know, four shots in three minutes. Literally it'll be, you know, this one minute shot. Um, and unless you're filming a shot uh, that, you know, has a whole bunch of things happening in it in one minute that you can stay on it. It's just not going to tell a story. And so learning to film sequences is really, really important. And I'm actually in the process of putting together a, um, a video tutorial on, on sequences. Um, and it's going to be a free video that will be on uh, my site, masterwildlifefilmmaking.com. Um, and it will be free. You just enter your, your name and email address in and you can download the video. Because for me, it's one of the most important elements of storytelling. And as a filmmaker, you know, they say you can be overcome by excitement, enthusiasm, um, and passion that you really don't see the woods for the trees. You, you've really got to kind of concentrate when you're out there and make sure when you get home, you've got everything you need to tell that story. So in addition to this, this tutorial video you're working on, um, you're also about to launch a new podcast series that's focused on a lot of these issues that we're talking about, sort of providing advice to uh, aspiring wildlife filmmakers. Um, tell us a little bit about this, uh, this new podcast series you're working on. Yeah, sure. It's well, it goes kind of um, hand in hand with the masterwildlifefilmmaking.com website, which um, is currently being constructed. So um, we are working on putting lots of different tutorials on there. Uh, and part of it is the podcast. Um, and the podcast really, you know, the idea came from the fact that um, I get lots of people asking me for advice. And I felt that, you know, a lot of these people, they, they find me because of my background with National Geographic. That's, that's primarily where people um, kind of, uh, you know, find me online. And because of they see the, the kind of diverse kind of things that I've done, they, they want to find out, you know, how I got into it or how I managed to film, you know, whatever it might be that they've found. Um, and I realized that really, you know, it, it's about us as filmmakers who have gone through all of these, you know, gone over these obstacles, if you like, to, to get where we are today. I mean, let's face it, as a wildlife filmmaker, it would be really, really easy to stop and go and do a different job, right? <laughs> that, that would be so easy to do. I have found myself on many occasions thinking, I'm done. I am done. I'm through. I'm going to go and get a real job, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing, because it can be really, really hard and taxing at times. Um, and so I realized that, you know, it, it's, it's important for 
people who have been through those kind of trials and tribulations as filmmakers and, and got through them and um, to, to be able to, you know, give advice to other people coming up. Um, I think it's the most valuable form of learning that people can do is take advice from people who have been there and done that. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I've always liked to right back from the days of uh, the wildlife park, you know, telling kids about the, the insects and things at the, the insect house. I've always loved being able to share information. And so for me now, um, what I found is that, uh, I, you know, by being able to do tutorials, video tutorials, um, it, it's a way for me to give that information away to people and say, hey, this is how I did it. This is how I do it these days. You know, maybe this will help you. And part of that was the podcasting. And I realized that, you know, I, I'm fortunate enough to, be, to meet many great filmmakers. And I learned so much from those people. And of course, this is, this is how you and I met, Matt, um, at the International wildlife film festival um and um and you were the first person i actually recorded for my podcast um and you know it was a case that okay here are all these filmmakers out there we all have our own story our own way we got into it our own mistakes that we've made our, our own success stories and so why not you know try and give that information out to people and say hey here's other people's stories this is how they did it not only is there valuable information in there about filmmaking but there's also great stories that that show that you know everyone has these problems or problems of their own. You know, when you see someone, for instance, like Rick Rosenthal, Rick is um, a cinematographer, an underwater cin cinematographer primarily, um, and a marine biologist. He's, um, he's the first episode on the Master Wildlife Filmmaking podcast. Um, and Rick is well known for, he, he's now made, I think he's filmed around 35 feature um, uh, shows. Um, he is cameraman on Planet Earth, um, uh, the Blue Planet, the Life series, uh, to name a few. Um, he has been and, and really done it all. Um, but what was incredible in speaking to Rick was that he went through some, when he first got into it from kind of transitioning from a marine biologist to a filmmaker, he invested in, you know, a lot of money's worth of gear. Because that was back in the days when you couldn't go and buy a camera for $1,000, right? You had to spend a hundred grand to buy a camera and a lens that would do the job. Um, and he did. He invested huge amounts of money so that he could go, and this is back in the 60s. So he, he approached um, the BBC and said, look, this is what I do. Um, I want to work for you guys. And, you know, you obviously need to listen to the podcast to, to get the full story. But the gist of it was that he went out and did worked on some of his first projects with the BBC. And <clears throat> this was in the day of film. And so it was costing hundreds of dollars to put a magazine on the camera to run film, first of all. Then, of course, to send it, it was costing a fortune in couriers. And then to develop it was costing a fortune. And then it was only at that time where you got to see what you had actually filmed, right? It's not like today where we film and we see it and we go, okay, that's no good. I'm getting rid of that. And, you know, I'll just film again because we have so much cheap media these days. Um, you know, this was back in the day. You had to get it right first time. And... Um, 
he, he one of the stories I remember him telling was one of the first things he did with the BBC. He sent it off to his uh, his boss back at the BBC, and I think it was a telegram he got back because he was uh, he was abroad and um, from Bristol in the United Kingdom. The telegram came saying, uh, "What the heck?" And I don't want to use the words that he used. And I, I think I may have had to bleep them out, but <laughs> he basically, um, uh, you know he was told why did he turn the camera on you know why did he press record it was so bad the stuff that he had recorded in in that's how what the bbc felt it was so bad what the heck was he doing pressing record and spending all that money on film so that was some of the first feedback he got and i tell you you know if you get feedback like that from people in the industry that is enough to make you just quit right there and then Right, that's enough to make you go. You know, I'm not cut out for this. I'm off. But he had invested a lot, and he was passionate, and he carried on going, and he became one of the great cinematographers of our time. Um, but it's really, really inspirational to find out that some of your heroes, like you know, Rick, is a hero to me. I mean, he's filmed some of the greatest uh, shows that that have been on television. Some of the elements in them, um, and uh, you know. Uh, it's great to hear that people like him have really had some bad, bad feedback, you know, in the early days. And they struggled and struggled and struggled until they got through and, um, and to the other side and, and were successful. Um, and that to me was, you know, even where I am today, it's great to hear that people like that struggle. Because when we struggle, we feel like we're the only ones, right? We feel like we're sat there alone in our little edit, edit rooms looking at our mediocre footage or our dreadful footage. There might be a 10-second shot that we go, wow, if only all my footage could look like that 10-second shot I filmed there. You know, uh, it's great to know that everyone goes through that. They really do. There's, there's no one out there who takes a camera out and gets it right first time or even second time or even third time. You know, we're always learning. Um, I'm still learning. I will learn till the day I die, and that's that's for sure. Um, that's one of the things that I love about filmmaking. Right? It is you just you're constantly learning and adapting to situations. So, so the podcast very much is about telling other people's stories, other filmmakers, um, and we're going to have some great, great people on there. So we're starting off with Rick, Rick Rosenthal, uh, Matt. You are an uh, episode two, um, telling us all about your uh, your career with wildlife filmmaking. Um, we have, who else have we got lined up? Uh, Roshan Patel, um, who filmed the Red Wolf Revival, which just won a couple of awards at the International Wildlife Film Festival this year. Uh, and, and yeah, many, many more great filmmakers. And, and we're going to, some will be um, very much dedicated wildlife filmmakers. Some will be dedicated cinematographers. Some might be producers. Uh, some will be editors. Some will be one of the, uh, Ali Alvarez, um, Alvarez, sorry, Ali Al Alvarez, who just filmed um, uh, Death is Life, um, beautiful film about how the monarch butterfly uh, carries the soul of um, people who die. Um, it's, a, it's a story of, um, of death and kind of being reborn in the monarch butterfly. And, um, you know, it's slightly different. She's not a wildlife filmmaker, but her main subject in the film is the monarch butterfly. And so uh, we've got a great interview with her and her experiences with, uh, with filming. So, um, so it's 
it's going to be very diverse, and the idea is to get many, many different kind of viewpoints across from different aspects of wildlife filmmaking and wildlife filmmakers. You've touched on a lot of really, I think, important points about you know what it's like to be a wildlife filmmaker and like what advice uh, is sort of. I, I guess most relevant for folks to hear when they're first getting into it. Um, you know, I think one of the key things that you touched on in discussing the uh, uh, conversation you had with, with Rick Rosenthal um, was this idea of persistence, right? Um, and like yeah. how important it is to not give up when you have those moments where, Absolutely. You know, which all of us have been, you know, anybody who's a, a filmmaker has, has been through, many many moments like that where um where where you just feel like you you know you're ready to give up um, yeah. and you know yeah the filmmakers who are successful and who figure it out are the ones who um realize the importance of persistence and um, and sometimes just you know when you get back and you 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 realize that maybe your footage doesn't live up to your expectation you know still go ahead still make the show because it's it you know a lot of time we can get lost within if we're we're actually physically filming it we can get so wrapped up in the fact that our footage isn't what we expected that we forget that actually the story is really what's carrying it and if the story is good then you know you can live with mediocre footage so the key is not to give up and to make the shows and just to say hey you know i'm going to do better i'm going to improve as i go along great advice there um really excited for the new podcast master wildlife filmmaker um we'll certainly have uh links on the show notes page for this episode for folks to uh check that out and learn more about the series um and yeah thanks a lot jake for coming on the show and sharing your your really unique perspective on wildlife filmmaking it's been a lot of fun yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me here. And it, just to clarify, it's masterwildlifefilmmaking.com and it will be the podcast well, not filmmaker. Gotcha. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll have the link right, I'm sure. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get it right on the show notes page, I promise. <laughs> there you go. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, Jake. All right, that was our interview with wildlife filmmaker Jake Willers. I love all the helpful advice that Jake is so eager to share with fellow filmmakers, and he is really spot on with all the tips and tricks that he shares here in this interview. I can't help but think that Jake and I should collaborate on an episode of my ongoing how-to series here on the show, From Field Biologist to Filmmaker. Although Jake's path is certainly different from my own, we both started off as biologists before migrating into the realm of storytelling, filmmaking, and educating. Give me a shout if you appreciated Jake's advice here and think that this is a good idea to collaborate on an episode of From Field Biologist to Filmmaker. I'll throw my email address up on the show notes page so you can shoot me a quick message. And, of course, the show notes page is where you can find all of the relevant links discussed in this episode, including uh, links to Jake's website, um, his new podcast series, Master Wildlife Filmmaking, um, and we'll also embed some clips from Jake's time uh, spent as a television host up there on the show notes page so you can see him in action. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC72. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. The Humidors.